Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Donnie Buchanan, co-founder, CIO, and portfolio manager for the Lakehouse Small Companies Fund. Before that, he was with QIC's global infrastructure team and as an investment analyst at CP2, formerly Capital Partners, investing across listed and unlisted markets. He's also had stints at KPMG and one of Australia's largest super funds, Q Super. Well, small caps have been hit for six, but that doesn't mean investors should run for the hills. In today's episode, we discuss how important it is to stick to your mandate when things aren't going well. High conviction means exactly that. Still, there are lessons to be learned, and Donnie takes us through those. We also dig into the challenges posed with valuing these long-duration tech stocks. Finally, we look at what positions Lakehouse has been selling and buying as we make our way through this hard time in markets. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment mines from Australia and abroad. Well, Donnie, thanks for coming on Rules of Investing. Thanks for having me, David. It's great to be here. So over 25%. Small odds, picked a trough. Uh, it's been ugly. How are you holding up? Yeah, look, it's been a, a very tough year, uh, in particular the last nine months. Um, we're concentrated growth-oriented investors. We've been ground zero for the the uh, sell-off. Um, it's been a tough year, but we've stuck to our philosophy and continue to execute on our investing process and um, seen some green shoots in July. Long may it continue, but it's uh, it's been a tough market for sure. So what are you telling investors? Um, very much that. So we actually had a webinar for our investors yesterday and, um, you know, we were very candid with them about the sectors that we're overweight relative to the benchmark and, you know, their IT, consumer, um, healthcare in our small companies fund, com- communication services in the global fund. But those sectors have been down 20, 30% this year. Um, we tend to avoid um, capital hungry price taker businesses. So the likes of energy materials, um, and they've had a, a great run. Um, energy's up about 25% over the financial year, and we haven't been part of that. And uh, we've been in sectors that have been sold off very, very heavily. But um, I guess zooming out, so if you look at it over the last decade and a half, the best performing sectors in rank order, they are IT, consumer. Um, they've materially outperformed the benchmark over that time. Energy is at the bottom of that list. Um, around 2.5% compound over the last 15 years. Um, so, you know, investors are in energy are back to levels they were in 2008. Um, we're looking to beat the market. We're sticking to our guns and it's been a painful year, but uh, we feel good about the businesses that we own from here. Yeah, so just talking about, you know, sectors like energy and commodities, which have they've pulled back, but broadly they went the other way. Yeah. The last thing you want to do when things aren't going well is, is chase the market. Yeah. Um, it's a great point and a point that was made yesterday to our investors. You know, we're very clear about what we do and we do what we say on the tin. Um, if we had been chasing energy and resources, um, I told our investors very candidly that should be cause for concern for them. Um, it's not what we're about. It's not what we've ever been about. So, you know, this industry is very humbling and it's been a humbling 12 months. Um, but, you, you know, you, your conviction gets tested and um, it's through periods like this that I think uh, investors 
are called on to show their true colours and and really lean on the conviction that they have. Has the past year made you change the way you think about analysing these growth businesses, especially tech, which you guys are heavy? I'd say yes and no. Um, There's no doubt that we went through a period of uh, euphoric valuations and that was really off the back of the largest fiscal and monetary stimulus that the world has ever seen um, through that COVID period. And, you know, there's a confluence of factors there. I think you've had the gamification of share trading. Um, there's been a proliferation in apps and low or no cost trading. Um, and when people were locked down at home and, you know, paid to stay at home and cash levels started to accelerate in their bank accounts, a lot of that found its way to the market. And uh, I think you saw some of that reflected in the valuations. We had very high um, cash weightings through that period, but we're not paid to get out of the market entirely. Um, so you, you still have to wear it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost like they got this cash. They couldn't physically go to the real casino. So what, what do they do? They turn the market into their, their own casino. Yeah, there was a, I guess there was a little bit of that. Um, the game, whole Reddit game crowd. And, and Exactly. Um, there was some odd and I would argue irrational behavior in the market. Um, and, you know, there's a classic saying, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And um, if you look at things like Web 3.0, what's happened in the crypto market, um, there's been a, a lot of money flow into assets, asset classes, if we want to call it that, that doesn't make a lot of sense um, to me anyway. And we try to remain rational and objective through periods like this. Just circling back to the way these growth companies are valued yeah. and priced, they're priced in a very different way to, to other sectors, you know, revenue projections versus profit. It all seems very aspirational. Is there a problem with that? those kind of you know, valuation metrics? Yeah, look, I, th- I think it can absolutely be a trap. Um, just stepping back, let's think about IT at large. It's, it's the bleeding edge of innovation and sort of the advancement of humanity in a way. There have been extraordinary levels of wealth created in very short periods of time in that industry. That's very alluring to investors. And I think... Um, Retail and professional investors, institutional investors can get carried away with that at times and lose their head on valuation. Um, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that there's a, a real business there. You want to understand the incremental economics of, of where the businesses are going. Um, if I think of some businesses that we've been long-term holders of, so the Zeros and ProMedicus in our small companies fund, um, zero in particular, I'll, I'll sort of dive in there a bit more. It's printed accounting losses um, with the exception of during COVID when they took their, their foot off the gas on sales and marketing and the business started to, to spew cash. Um, it's printed accounting losses since its inception and um, they've just continued to reinvest. And it, it's something that I haven't, I don't think the market has fully appreciated. If you just take a cursory look, you can't see the, uh, the value creation that's happening there until you fully appreciate the business. Um, you know, for every dollar that they've invested in sales and marketing, they're earning multiples of that in lifetime value. Not every business that says they do that actually does that. 
Um, shout out to Nick Thompson, who's the portfolio manager on our global fund. Um, he used to run our loyalty fascination and he's built out a, a great database where we've sought to really standardize those calculations um, across our investable universe. And, you know, there are plenty of companies, particularly those companies that might need more capital that want to paint themselves in a favorable light and um, they'll be a little liberal in their interpretation on calculating um, lifetime value to customer acquisition cost. So just coming back to the question that, that you asked there, I think that it is fraught with um, with some challenges and you really need to to standardize and understand what's what's happening there. But um, yeah, we, we see a lot of businesses in that space that have superior economics to traditional businesses in the market. And if I was to step back and ask a very simple question of you, um, do you think there will be more or less IT um, in the index in the years ahead? And yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, those long duration companies where their sole purpose, it seems, is to just hoover up market share. Mm-hmm. I know this isn't the the space in the market that you play, but for every Apple, for every Amazon, yep. you know, there's there's an Uber, there's a Netflix. And it just seems to me like the current way of of valuing these these reinvesting companies, it's just it's just not there yet. Yeah, you've named some some great businesses there, David. Um, I guess I'd come back to the point around the massive wealth creation that's happened in in IT as a sector. And that is very alluring to investors. And it's easy to build a narrative around, um, you know, some of those businesses that you've mentioned and and others like uh, DoorDash. And, you know, there's a there's been a proliferation of those businesses out there um, through this period of very cheap capital. But at the end of the day, um, businesses need to make money. They can't invest in customer acquisition and and push out the cash flow indefinitely. Um, the chickens have come home to roost on that and, you know, people are figuring out which businesses have a, a real business and real cash flows behind them and, and which th- those which were a little bit more um, conceptual in nature. Do you think we'll see those sky-high PEs that we've seen in the past? Uh, look, it's entirely possible that we see that in the future. I mean, you just look back 20 years to the dot, dot com bust and um, there was similar behaviour there. Who knows what happens in the future? So I wouldn't say no, never. Um, US mid-cap tech, we saw some absolute nosebleed revenue multiples there. That certainly come down to earth. Um, I don't think that gets back there anytime soon. And we're seeing mass layoffs, particularly across the US. Um, some of these businesses are really struggling for cash and you know, the landscape is changing quickly and I think there's a good bit more to unfold here yet. So yeah, won't give a, give a definitive answer on that. Um, so Donnie, what, what changes, if any, have you guys made to the portfolio? Look, we're always trying to optimise for what we own, um, but our investment horizon is sort of three, five plus years um, and we're always looking at the opportunity set within that, trying to own the 20 best companies in the investable universe for our small companies fund and similar for the global fund. Um, so we've we've uh, trimmed a few positions. So we had a position in um, Nitro and, you know, they were doing very well through the pandemic and, and lockdowns and there was a big 
move to um, digital documentation and e-signature and so forth. Um, but we also follow Adobe and DocuSign and the tide was rising fast and uh, lifting all boats, but we could see that uh, we, we thought our, on our judgment, Adobe and DocuSign, when things started to slow down, um, they were getting more aggressive and um, yeah, ultimately we ended up exiting that business. Um, we tend to look for market leaders in secular growing markets and um, yeah, there's some great attributes to Nitro, but we, we think that there might be some challenges there against the likes of Adobe and DocuSign as, as things get less easy for them to win customers. Where'd you send that capital? So in terms of where we allocated that capital, there are a couple of interesting IPOs that came to market. Um, PEXA and SiteMinder, uh, they're businesses that are squarely in our wheelhouse. Um, you know, they're market leaders in their in what they do. Um, what, what, what do they do? PEXA are the dominant property settlement platform in Australia. They have over 80% of market share and you've sort of seen the digitization of um, property settlement and, and they've got the entirety of the market almost uh, when it comes to refinancing, they're over 90% market share there. Um, and then uh, SiteMinder, they facilitate um, ho smaller hotels um, through their booking system and payment system and um, two very interesting businesses that are, you know, dominant and have large addressable markets that they're, they're going after PEXs moving into the UK. Um, there's a little bit more to unfold there, but the the main business, the core business is in Australia. It's a, a very strong, um, the company wouldn't like to use the term monopolistic, but uh, they're in a dominant position there. Have you found yourself, uh, you know, when volatility increases, have you found yourself moving up um, the market cap spectrum? That's certainly been a feature through this period and one of the challenges of being a concentrated small cap manager um, and one of the things that needs to be managed carefully uh, is absolutely liquidity. Um, in a word, yes, you're sort of forced to uh, ensure that you maintain sufficient liquidity. There's always a temptation to sell your most liquid positions to to do that, um, I think that's a, a real trap and you need to be very considered in how you manage that. We've, in my view, we've seen some pretty irrational pricing at the small end of town, um, some elevated shorting as well. Um, and I'm actually quite intrigued by that. I, I've never shorted a stock in my life. It's it's not a domain that I claim to have any expertise in, but um, the shorts have worked uh, into shrinking, you know, falling prices and shrinking liquidity. But at the end of the day, the shorts need to get out of that position in shrink, shrunk, smaller liquidity. Um, and I, I think that that can be challenging. Um, I think you've seen a little bit of that play out in July. So the smalls index is up low double digits in July. Um, and you know, we've we've had a, a good month for our portfolio. I think there's been a an unwinding of elevated tax loss selling uh, in June, um, but also some of those shorts are coming off as we move into reporting season and we've got some updates from these companies and the fundamentals are are starting to get a little bit more attention. How important is it to block out the noise um, of the daily, even weekly stock price movements? You know, these, especially in small caps, the just a, a couple of trades can really move the needle up and down. Yeah. Um, more than even, you know, other areas of the market, is it, is it important to, you know, look through that volatility? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this comes back to your earlier point about liquidity. That's um, You can see some very big moves in a very short period of time um, on pretty tight liquidity there. Um, but just the importance of blocking out the noise, I'd say very important or perhaps very, very important. Um, there's always plenty of noise and there are a lot of very smart people that operate in this industry. Um, it is highly competitive. There are many different ways to skin the cat. And, you know, there are traders out there that make great returns. Um, there are people that invest in materials and energy and, you know, do extraordinarily well. Um, we're very clear and deliberate about what we do. Um, our philosophy, our process, uh, it, it is followed through thick and thin um, in different market environments. Our conviction is tested often, uh, perhaps more on the small cap side than the global, um, for exactly the reason that you say you can have very significant rapid movements there. So, you know, we, if I was to bring this back to macro, um, we're not macro driven, but we're certainly macro aware. And an important attribute within that is we try to align our macro views with our investing time horizon. And I think that's important. Um, so we've come out of a period of historic low bond rates. Um, they've jumped up very quickly as central banks have tried to run down inflation. And, you know, that's still happening. But if you think to, so mid-June, US 10-year bonds were at 3.5%. You move to now, like we're out a month and a half from then, and the 10-year bond rate has fallen to close to 2.7%. So that's a big move in what is a you know a 10-year number that all typically all asset prices are a runoff. Um, we're not in the habit of updating our models for moves in the 10-year bond rate, and when they were historically low, um, you know we didn't think it was reflective of where things would be in over our investment horizon and um, we sort of managed our valuations and expectations accordingly. Um, so I guess you need to look through that noise, align it with, align the macro um, factors that are out there with your investing horizon and yeah, just remain rational, I'd say, within that. Is it foolish to ignore macro? It seems to me so many f fundies, they say one thing, do another, they say they're, they're fundamental, they're, they're bottom-up investors, um, and that's what they're all about. Yet, you know, I sit down with them on this podcast and, yeah. you know, we, we could just talk macro all day. So they're obviously across it and it's obviously informing the way that they invest. Yep. So, you know, do you believe that fund managers who say, you know, we're just purely fundamental bottom-up investors? Yeah, look, I, I don't want to put words in anyone else's mouth, but I think um, really what people are saying is that they try to look through that noise because it is very noisy on macro. And like I said, a lot of smart people out there and they usually have data sets that can support their views. And um, there's always a, a spectrum of views and, you know, depending on which way you lean, you can be convinced of, the, of that. Um, so I, I think um, it's really about people or investors um, wanting to focus on the businesses that they own. So um, that's something that we're clear about with our investors. Like we own a collection of businesses here. We're not looking to trade stocks and um, we're not taking or making decisions from share prices. Um, so, you know, macro is there. It's the world we live in. It's 
inflation is a hot topic. It impacts, you know, the price that you're paying for your groceries, the the rent that people are paying, the um, mortgage payments with movements in interest rates. Um, just it is the world around us. You can't ignore that, um, but you need to filter the noise. I think. Yeah, it, it it gets dangerous when you know you're linking inflation to consumer confidence to another thing, another thing, and all these different you know degrees of separation. Yep. And then you're trying to predict how that's going to impact individual companies. It, it, it's almost as important as the macro is. It can also be a fool's errand. Yeah, none of this stuff happens in isolation. So we saw. Um, historic low investor sentiment and consumer sentiment printed in the US and, you know, and similar in Australia. Um, but people were talking about bond um, short-term interest rates moving towards 4%. And it's hard to see that happening from a place where investors and consumers are um, the most concerned that they've been in history. So you just, you can't, None of this happens in a vacuum. You can't consider these things in isolation. And even now you're seeing um, unemployment in the US tick up at a rapid rate. Amazon announced in the last week that they're laying off 100,000 employees. Uh, Walmart was out a couple of days ago. They're cutting a couple of hundred jobs from middle management. So it's not just the delivery drivers that, you know, the ramp up that Amazon made an investment during the during the COVID period, you're sort of getting um, middle management starting to to get hollowed out as well. Um, every day there's another tech company that's out that's cutting 20, 30, 40% of their staff. Um, cash preservation is central. The US labor market is incredibly dynamic and that's playing out now. And um, I think the next couple of months are going to be very interesting to see how how those unemployment numbers start to change in the US and in Australia. I think Australia will be a little bit slower because, you know, our labour market isn't as dynamic, but um, the Federal Reserve will react to that. I think you've seen some of that already in their commentary last week and even the RBA on Tuesday here this week, they, they've softened um, their views. But we're talking a lot about macro here uh, for someone who doesn't spend a lot of time <laughs> focusing on it. Without just, you know, taking the easy option and saying, oh, should have just gone to cash, what changes would you have made to your investing over the past 12 months if, if, if you could have? Yeah, I guess um, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, um, going up the market cap sooner would have been uh, a, a strong move. Um, I should be clear that, you know, the label on our the tin of our fund says we will typically hold between five and fifteen percent cash um, through the middle of last year and, and the first quarter of this financial year. We were close to the top end of of that cash level. Um, I would say that we were too early in um, running down that cash balance. We we could have um, remained higher for longer. Um, that's sort of that's at the margins. We. We had a couple of stock-specific issues, and you know the payment sector uh, is an area that we generally like the, the long-term dynamics around digital payments in particular. Um, and we had some, we've had some trouble in EML and Tyra and the small companies fund uh, on the global fund. Visa and PayPal got tagged towards the end of last year fairly hard, and um, yeah, that's that's uh, reversed somewhat um, for global in particular. You know. 
Tyro's 60% off its lows for the small companies fund. Um, there's been some challenges with EML with the, the CEO leaving. But we reflect on the decisions that we made there, um, try to remain rational and and just play the field that's in front of us and, you know, not get emotional about things. Um, so, yeah, there's there's some mistakes that we've made. We've reflected on those as a team and we're always trying to get better. As a fund manager, do you ever feel um, trapped by your mandate, um, by how invested you've told investors you're going to be, same with cash holding, especially during these times of high volatility? I think that's a really good question. Um, the, the answer for me is no. So um, the way that we're investing is how I believe I can best compound wealth, my wealth, my family's wealth over time. Um, we, you know, n- not all businesses are created equal. We believe in um, having a concentrated portfolio, just backing our best ideas. And I'm very comfortable with that. I accept that it comes with periods of very high volatility like we've had recently. Um, but over the long term, I am convinced that it's the best way to compound wealth. It won't happen in a straight line, but um, I, I don't feel trapped in the way that we're investing, no. Lakehouse based their high conviction ideas uh, on what you call um, fascinations. Take us through what fascinations are and how they uh, inform your your investing process. Yeah, sure. Um I think this is one of the big things that really differentiates Lakehouse in the market. So typically, um, investing teams would be divided by sector or geography um, or possibly market cap. Um, For us, we took a different approach. We really look at the different economic models out there and we focus on the economic models that we believe will create outsized returns for investors over time, Um, the best places to compound wealth. And uh, We've narrowed that down to businesses with network effects, IP or loyalty, and um, we may add other fascinations before and we may um, break those fascinations down into subsets in the future. But um, it really is a good way, in our view, it's a really good way to do it because you're not constrained by geography, market cap. So as I've mentioned, we have a global fund and an Aussie smalls fund, Um, you know, they sit at very different spectrums on the the equity uh, within the equity asset class. But Erwin, um, who's our fascination lead on networks, he can look at businesses like PayPal and market access and the network effects around that, and then bring that back to looking at attributes um, on businesses domestically. Um, so, you know, the the tyros of the world, um, Ordinate, um, you know. There's some overlap there. Another good example is just on the loyalty side. So um, we own a good bit of enterprise software, um, tends to be very sticky business. Um, and having that, going back to that database that I was talking about before, understanding the economics behind that and having a standardization across the globe effectively of what a really great business can look like in that space what a mediocre one looks like and having some benchmarks around that, we find that really valuable. The work we do on the global fund helps inform what we do on the small companies fund. It's it's a it's working well for us and it's a good way to divide the team and um, just get deep expertise in specific areas, in specific business models. And um, it allows us to 
to focus our investment universe and turn over a lot of stones in businesses that we we think are interesting. Yeah. How many companies are you left with um, after you put the market through that that washing machine? Yeah. So um, on global, um, it narrows down to roughly um, four hundred, and then within that, we've got a pool of um, hundred and fifty about that we've looked at. Um, we own. 20 stocks in the portfolio. We've got another 20 or so on the bench. And then there's some others sort of at the periphery. They might operate in the ecosystems of, of the businesses that we like and um, have the most conviction behind. Um, so, you know, we want to follow those. There are always new businesses coming to market as well. So, um, yeah, and businesses die and merge and whatever else. So it's constantly churning. Okay, Donnie, we always finish our podcast with three um, favourite questions. Question one, what's everyone getting wrong about the market at the moment or overestimating or underestimating? I won't go as far as to say I think everyone's getting something wrong, but um, in periods like this where you have heightened volatility and uncertainty, the the time horizon of the market shortens and it, it feels incredibly short and incredibly reactive at the moment. Um, when you look back on periods like this, they always look like opportunity in hindsight. Um, and I, I think people just need to look at the, despite the uncertainty and the concerns that are out there, I think people need to look through that, look at the fundamentals and valuations of the businesses that are on offer at the moment and um, where they're likely to be in five years' time. So keep a long time horizon uh, during a period when when the market has shortened it and I, I think it'll serve investors well. Cut out the noise. Cut out the noise. Okay, question two. Uh, could you share a story of a, a big win or gain or loss that you had? What happened and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I, I'll take this back to the earlier part of my career. I very much started out as a deep value manager um, and it was very um, academic almost, my approach to valuation and, and sort of thinking about companies. Early in my career, REA Group, Seek, Car Sales, like some great businesses came to market and they were at valuations that, you know, PE multiples in the 20s and 30s that, that you know, just didn't really fit in in that market. There was something appealing about the businesses, but they looked too expensive. The truth is I didn't have a good growth investing framework back then. Um, it's something that I've really developed and I'm convinced that it's a great way to compound wealth over the long term. And and that's, you know, I've, I've come full circle on, on that journey. And there's some great examples out there, you know, the Amazons, the Zeros, the REAs of the world. There's some incredible investments. And if you can understand those businesses early and uh, where they're going, you can do very well. Okay. And finally, if markets were to close tomorrow for, for five years and you could only hold shares in, in one company, what company would it be? All right. This is going to be a little controversial at, at current prices, um, but I'm going to, uh, with my small cap hat on, I'm going to go with Ordinate. Um <laughs> There was a question posed on Twitter a while back. What is the smallest market cap of a monopoly globally? Um, I didn't answer the question, but I, I thought it was an interesting exercise to go through. And um, I would nominate, ordinate within that group. And I think, you know, despite being a very tough operating environment over the last couple of years, um, I think the management team have done an incredible job of continuing to double down and invest for the long term. Um, 
their focus is on proliferating that network and that that ecosystem. And that ecosystem will be there for the next decade. It could be there for several decades. And they're still early in their journey in building that out. They've clearly won the market on audio. They're very well placed to win it for video. Um, so you've got this move from analog to digital, and then also the industry is behind in in terms of cloud adoption. They're making some very smart moves to to proliferate there. Um, what they did recently with the um, the Dante infield uh, activation or Dante Ready as they're calling it now, they're just getting their platform in as many devices as they can. It's a slow change out cycle, anywhere from sort of six to eight years are the, the numbers that are, that are that are out there. But I'm absolutely convinced that they will be the dominant platform in that space in the future. They flexed a little bit on pricing recently, but I think you're going to see plenty more of that in, in the years ahead. The focus at the moment is just building out the ecosystem. And yeah, I'm excited to see where that business is five years from now. That's it. I'm selling everything, putting it all on order. <laughs> <laughs> that is not sage investing advice. Diversification <laughs> is uh, is important. So. Okay. Well, on that on that uh, silly note, Donnie, thanks for coming on Rules of Investing. It's been a great chat. Terrific. Great to be here and hope we get to do this again sometime, David. Definitely. Cheers. Well, that's it for today's episode. We hope this gave you a bit of insight into the challenges and opportunities found in small caps today. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next week.